0: You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard.
1: Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm R Pasell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, will be coming out on September 13th. Woo!
0: I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features. Speed of Life, and Bread and Butter, and I'm currently in development on a smattering of others. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's Creative Distribution Initiative. This week, we will welcome writer, producer, actor, Alexandra Boylan on the show to talk about her rise as a filmmaker, shifting from genre filmmaking to faith-based filmmaking, and how the world of faith-based filmmaking operates. After that, we have an article from IndieWire about... Yellow Jackets creators being frustrated that it's still brave to show flawed female characters on the screen. And lastly, we have a listener question. But first, Alric, how are you? I'm
1: good. I mowed my lawn yesterday, which was really nice because I've uh, <laughs> been walking around my neighborhood lately and seeing all my neighbors beautifully mowed lawns. And, you know, I have a nice sized lawn and it was unmowed for like two or three weeks and it was embarrassing. And now it looks great. So I just... Look out my window at my nicely mowed lawn, feeling good. But other stuff, yeah, I don't know haven't been writing, been trying to get up early every day to write, haven't, I've been failing miserably every day. Yeah, there's no new updates on the project. Apparently, it's all happening this week, so maybe by next week, I'll have answers for people of, like, what's going on with it. And yeah, I'm doing the same thing I always do. I'm just saying yes to everything in life, so I'm I'm helping um, my producer, Jeff, he's got a movie directed by Mitch uh, Altieri, who's been on the show before. He's got his next movie that is that he's just finished just locked a picture on So, I have decided to be the online editor for the movie because I did that for my movie and Jeff knew it and he was like, hey, we don't have one, will you do it and give us a deal? I was like, sure. So, now I have like three new hard drives (laughs) sitting on my desk. I just lined up the whole thing, got it ready to go and now I've got a a bunch of tasks to do, which I mean, I just did it like a year ago. So, it's not that hard, but it's like, you know, it's just a lot of work like prepping visual effects shots for visual effects artists and, you know know exporting the cut like for color and for sound and then like you know re taking it all back in and like making sure it all works it's like it's just a
0: lot what's the end know. game for you like how do you benefit from that
1: well money
0: but one. if it's so you didn't cut them such a deal that it wasn't worth well
1: yeah i mean i'm still charging them but it's it's like i mean it would probably cost like upwards like like double what i'm paying you know uh, or charging uh, if they were to go to a, a house or something and do it like professionally, it's usually something you convince your editor to do for you. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, you have like a post-production supervisor you hire. So, that's basically what I'm what I'm doing. I think the end game for me is like helping other filmmakers make movies and being involved in, in films. Like, I like being, you know, part of the movie making process. And I think like, like, just like I did with that Coppola thing, it was just like, it was fun to be a part of. A movie even if it was just like i'm just like a production consultant i'm just kind of helping out and like you know making sure actors sign contracts and wait did you just
0: admit that it was a coppola project (laughs)
1: <laughs> well it's over now so they don't care anymore and
0: I called it. it do you remember when I was like well the only guess I have is that it's Coppola and you're like no it's not Coppola and then you laughed you laughed at me Alric. I like, tried yeah. to play it off <laughs> so now we know it was yeah. Coppola
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: I could see why well, you wouldn't want to say no to that I can totally yeah. see
1: that it wasn't. It wasn't. You know, Francis didn't direct or anything. It was it even Sophia didn't even direct. It was just a produced by Sophia and then by American Zoetrope. You know, so it was like under the banner. But it was the same crew and same people. And so, like, I just wanted to be a part of it and you know help. And it was fun. It was fun to like. I met all these local people in my area. All these these classic car owners that I got to get to know. And I like some of my neighbors like had classic cars. So I like knocked on their doors and was like, "Hey, like, do you want to get your car in the movie?" And so like. Now I kind of know some of my neighbors a little bit better. It's just kind of fun to like be ingrained in the Vallejo scene a little bit more than I was, which was Zero (laughs) before. And yeah. And then then this is fun because it's like, oh, you know, just get to you know help my producer out and, you know, work with with a filmmaker I I respect. And yeah, the movie's cool. I got to watch it and I get like, leave some notes on it too. So it's kind of fun just to be like, kind of like, you know, just helping, I guess. I like to help. And then... (laughs) in addition to that I'm insane our one of our listeners Eric Parnell asked me if I would edit his short film that he just finished and I was like well yes that like sounds like fun I read the script I looked at the stills it looked great and I was like, okay well I think I could help and like I was like giving him advice of like oh they you know, solutions to his editor problem he's like well i really want to work with you because like i will trust you and i feel like i know you from the podcast and i was like all right sure like let's do it because because this actually has more of an end game because i think in the future rather than doing a day job if i like was editing movies as like the other (laughs) my other thing that i did like if editing features or shorts and being paid to do that was like my day job and then my other job was making movies and i didn't have to do like a non film-related job, like, that would be great. You know, I love my job, by the way, uh, all the Glass and Marker folks who may or may not be listening, I love the work I do, but, you know, obviously, if I could be working in narrative film 100% of the time, you know, in any capacity, I'd rather be doing that, and I think editing's probably, like, the, the end to the narrative world that I would like the most because, like, I don't really want to produce the movies I've realized, like, that's not fun. I mean, I will do it for sure in the future. I'm definitely going to produce a movie for sure for someone else. Absolutely. But it's not like, like I don't want to be a line producer. I don't want to be on set like, you know, because I've got, I've got like two or three line producer offers since I left freelance. <laughs> and I just like I've had to turn them all down. And it's like, that's not, not interesting to me because it's like, oh, well, you're going to be with your family. It's going to be super stressful. And like, you don't have any creative say. But like, if right. I get to be an editor on a movie, it's like, I have some creative input. I don't have to leave my family. And I get to still, you know, be involved in the, in the filmmaking process. So I'd much rather do that. So if anybody wants to hire me to edit their feature uh, and you don't have a deadline, <laughs> let's <laughs> talk.
0: <laughs> I know I was about to... Uh... My like Jewish mother side Was what to come out And chastise you And be like what? You know Remember your anxiety all oh, Rick Remember the time You had the panic attack Let's stop saying yes To everything And then, But it sounds like You have a reason For why Why you said I, yes
1: I, I always okay. have a reason It's still a bad idea It's not It doesn't make it good That I can't That I just want You know And I always say Get clearance uh, From my From my other half And it, basically It's like As long as it doesn't Detract from my time With my daughter yeah. Then she doesn't really care Like if I can do it And like just not Sleep. Like, you know, that's better that's okay and like that so that's kind of like my plan is to s- sneak it in you know where i can and then like just you know do it at night after i finish work and stuff so yeah. i think it'll work i think it's gonna be fine but how are you doing you just got back from alabama is just got back from seeing
0: family for a week it was great to see them i think what the, i guess the topic i'd want to bring up in this section is that i'm i'm reading again like for pleasure and it's been game-changing like from four to five where I, I end my day, I try to end my day at four and then four to five, I go out on, we have a very, very small balcony and my husband bought me a chair and the chair is really important to me. <laughs> the chair, I call the chair my third child. My dog is the first child. Colin is the second child. The chair is the third child. And <laughs> I read and it's been... It's been really, really helpful to get out of my head to scape. And it gives me like a little high to be immersed in this world for an hour or a day. And I think it's been helping me write. It's been helping me feel less intense. So that's really exciting. As I finish, I'm reading two books right now. And then we watched Nosferatu on Joe Bob's show. And it was wow. so amazing. The the Nosferatu Herzog did. It was so amazing. So I just feel like I'm in a place where like I'm actually in, ingesting art and it's Influencing me and helping me like, And and I feel like it's been a long time Since I did that because before it was like Watch a movie to go to sleep, watch a movie Because you have to, watch a movie because Sean Wants to watch it, but now it feels like Oh, I watch a movie and I It directly leaves an imprint Like we saw Come On, Come On a few weeks ago And then Nosferatu and then Stranger Things Was a very big deal for me So I guess the thing to talk about right now is just The importance of art, the importance of What we do and uh, forgetting That for a few years, forgetting how important and reading was to me like my entire life and and coming back to it. So, that's all that. Nice. I mean, there's other stuff going on, but I think that's like the thing that feels exciting right now.
1: No breaking news on any of your million projects that you're on. It's all just chugging forward.
0: We have some pretty exciting progress on one of them. Like we actually have at least one sales company that wants to come on board one of my projects and possibly another. And so, I'm learning the process of what I barely understand just like sales companies and backing offers and reaching out to talent in that way but it's so you know me like unless it's real it's not real so it's it's a move forward but i don't think it's until there's blood Ulrich. until there's blood on the contract it's not real
1: yeah so you you think like oh it's just another step we'll see what happens
0: yeah i'm really excited excited because it feels like we're at least firing on one cylinder now maybe one and a half how many cylinders are there how what's the max cylinder Um, amounts eight i don't know 12 12 cylinders yeah so like maybe three or four cylinders we're firing on a couple cylinders
1: (laughs) which is nice awesome
0: and then we're you know near the end of the next draft of the script the horror feature so that's happening but i'm just happy happy to read man i'm just happy to read
1: Oh, that's great. <laughs> and so did you say the script is almost done? The the, the next script?
0: draft. So just the next draft. And then we're going to oh, okay. go in. But I think reading has helped in that. I don't know if you feel this way, but when you're in a place in the script that you're writing where you you come up with ideas throughout the day and you're like, "Oh, I want them to say something like this or oh this applies to my life in this way i'm going to write this memory down to integrate it into the film some way i'm in that place right now where it's mm. like additive mm. autobiographical elements and i think reading has weirdly helped the writing process
1: wow that's awesome
0: yeah so everyone nice. get up get a book out
1: i gotta write first then i can read <laughs> <laughs> That's my problem. All right, and also I gotta say, Strange Things was amazing.
0: So, so good.
1: Yeah, the uh, the the last episode was like wow, all came together, and like I started to see. I was like I think that's what's gonna happen. And then it's like, oh, my God, it's supposed to happening. Oh, my God. It's great. <laughs> very, very cool. Very cool.
0: Well, I want to think something else that's really cool is supporting us on Patreon. www.patreon.com. MMIH podcast. We'd like to wish a very happy birthday. That's what we do when people donate to our Patreon and their new Patreon supporters. We wish them happy birthday. Happy birthday, Mitch Fields. Thank you so much for the love. Mitch wants to encourage folks like him who are making movies as a second half of life journey. That opportunity is there and to keep at it.
1: I also want to just give a shout out to the Bay Area Media Makers Summit that we were at this last weekend with our our one of our actually first live show and i think since like 2019 probably at this point or maybe even 2018 i think was our last one it's been a long time since we did a live show so yeah we were there in person i was there in person liz was there virtu- virtually and we were there with mark somalowitz who's a local producer out here in the san francisco bay area who's done over 50 projects as a producer which is insane but yeah it was a really great conversation we had a really great turnout and we're going to release the episode as a full episode in, in a couple weeks or even even next week but the thing that's really cool is we've got all this like little bonus footage like of like the Q&A afterwards and some of the the preamble beforehand and we're going to release that um as specials on the Patreon so if you're not a Patreon subscriber, you will not be able to hear these wonderful extra little tidbits from Mark, which were really cool. So, but if you are, they will be there for you. So enjoy. But just wanted to make sure people knew that that was coming. And then thank uh, the BAMS team for all their support. It was a really, really great couple collaboration. And I'm really excited for the future of the summit because it's something we desperately need in the Bay Area. And it was so cool to be a part of it.
0: Also, we want to shout out Jambox.io, which is a royalty-free music and SFX company with an MVP. Emphasis and high quality cinematic cues. They have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood level films, working with directors like Michael Bay, Martin Scorsese, global brands like DJI. They offer customized plans. Check them out. Without any more delay, here's our chat with Alexandra Boylan.
1: Welcome, Alexandra, to the show. Thanks so much for being here today. Give us the elevator pitch for Identity Crisis.
2: So, Identity Crisis is about a shy science whiz in college who struggles with imposter syndrome and not feeling good enough. And she figures out how to clone herself in order to create the perfect identity and send her off to do all the things that she's afraid to do. In the process, discovering that she was already created perfect herself and she had all the courage she just needed to try.
0: How many days did you shoot?
2: 18 days. All of our movies are shot with 18 days. (laughs) Oh,
1: really? What was the rough budget, if you can say?
2: I cannot say. Can you give
0: a range? Yeah, one, 1. 1.5 to 2. Oh, that's a fair. Thank you. That's actually a pretty s- specific range. We appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how did you or how did the writing team? And I'm so sorry. I don't know whether you wrote it or not. So now I've just shown my cards. How is the idea come up with?
2: Yeah, so my sister and I write together. This is our our sixth film together, writing, producing, creating. And we made a movie called Switched about two girls in high school, and one's a bully and one's the girl she bullies. And the girl she bullies prays the other girl would know it's like to walk her day in her shoes. They wake up switched. And, you know, really empowering for young women. And we after we put that movie out, we really saw like a huge need for more teen girl content that empowers and inspires young women and talks about confidence. And so we were like, oh, I think we're on to something there. So even though we had made The Greatest Inheritance in between Switch, when we got off of that, we were like, let's do another teen girl movie. You, you, there seems to be a big need for it in the marketplace. So we, went, we decided to come up with another fun sort of Disney concept of – Cloning, and that's and that's what we were talking about. We actually originally had the Merrill twins who have six point five million followers on YouTube. One of them is in Switch, and I had asked them if they wanted to do a twin movie together. So it actually stemmed from having twins. And instead of making it some boring twin movie, we actually decided, Oh, we could do a cloning movie because the person could come out of the cloning machine and look just like you. So that's how it started.
1: And then how long did you spend working on the film from like coming up with that idea? to it being released well it's not released yet to when it's going to be released i suppose if you have a release date planned
2: yeah i I think we're hoping for this fall but we wrote it at the end we started writing it around summer of 2020 and then i think no or 2021 oh my gosh you guys it's been a tough couple of years (laughs) january of 2021 is when we started pitching it to studios and other companies and around that time we got it we met Aaron Miller and Ben Howard from Third Coast Content, and they loved the script and they joined forces with my sister and I. And we we joined we did a joint venture and we went into pre-production. And then we ended up shooting January of 2022 at Grand Canyon University in Arizona. And hopefully it'll be out this fall.
0: So a couple years. <laughs>
1: wow, that's fast.
0: Yeah. And compared to all the other projects you've made, how difficult was this one?
2: So here's the crazy thing. This
0: was the,
2: the easiest and fastest one of any of them because Switched had opened up so many doors. So when I had taken Switched out years, years of people passing on it, saying no, like, you know, they just no, everyone. And then we ended up raising private investment for Switched, making it, putting it out. And it really did very, very well. So that opened up the door for people being like, oh, I get Switched. I want to make this movie with you guys, if that makes sense. Yeah,
1: yeah. Can you talk about like what the success for Switch was like? Like, what did it look like? Like, was it a film festival that you got into? Was it a, a certain distributor who got on, got on board? Like what catapulted that movie into like getting you where you are now with this next one?
2: We don't do film festivals. I have a sales agent. I'm, from my first movie, I started with the sales agent. He stayed on with our us and was our executive producer, which has been always great to have a sales agent attached to your project because... You can pitch them ideas and they'll be like, "Ah, oh, that'll never sell. Or that's a great idea. Go with that one. So our sales agent was already attached to Switched. We had taken... And then we shot the film and we took it out and we ended up going with Vertical Entertainment. We thought we got a theatrical release, but it was in... It came out September 2020. So as you can imagine, that got <laughs> taken away. <laughs> But it's okay because it's an anti cyberbullying movie, and we could it couldn't have been a more perfect time for a movie to release online for kids who were stuck in their houses dealing with cyberbullying. So it's actually really good timing for the movie because it was able to hit the audience when the audience had nothing else to watch but this movie over and over and over. So it just really did well. It, it we we released on Flix streaming and it hit number one for them. It's just been doing really good. So it, the audience is reacting really well.
0: Look, let's start talking a little bit about you as an actress and then moving into producing. So, I mean, I read this crazy story about you. I mean, I'm sure you've told it like 3000 times, but you know, you jump in your car, you decide to come to Hollywood, you put all your, 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 you know, pennies into catching faith or, you know, can you tell us a little bit about how do you make room for producing and acting and how, how did that all evolve?
2: Yes. Well, you're absolutely right. At 19, I jumped in the car and drove from Massachusetts to LA. I was like, I'm going to be a movie star. And oh boy, did that not happen for 10 years. And I just struggled, and I hit walls, and all this. I'm a, such a stereotypical person. I was homeless. I lived in my car. I have. I was waitressing. I have all. And finally, in 2009, when I was 29 years old, it was like I woke up and I got hit in the head with something. Going, if you keep doing the same thing over and over, you are going. You're going crazy, and you had to stop expecting different results. So I actually packed up and moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, in 2009. And was like, okay, I need to refigure out my life. Maybe I'll do something else. And when I was in Albuquerque, I I started standing in. I was Megan Fox's standing. I was Cat uh, Cat Dennings standing on Thor. And I started meeting all these other awesome independent filmmakers. And we were like, let's just start making our own stuff. And originally, I started making my own movies to put myself in the movie. I was like, I'll just give myself a job. Then... Uh, fast forward now, I've fallen so in love with writing and producing that acting isn't even it's on the I just booked the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And to be honest, it was how do I fit this in my schedule? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so we started making indie movies and we made this like five person low budget thriller. And I ended up moving back to LA with the thriller and we were able to get a sales agent. We sold it at AFM. And that's the beginning of the writing producing career that has been. And ever since I stepped in, I think the other thing is as an actor, you you cannot work hard enough for someone to pick you. And I have such a strong work ethic. Clearly, I've made 8 movies in 10 years. But I... So once I put myself into a position where I could start having some sort of control over the outcome... I was able to accomplish things. And I was like, oh, this is what I should have been doing a long time ago. (laughs) So, yeah. So then and then when we got the opportunity to make Catching Faith, which is our first faith-based family movie, I was living in L.A. at the time and the budget was so little, but I was so gung-ho about making a female-driven faith-based film that I was like, we're going to make this and we're going to prove that there's an audience for female-driven films in this space. And I put everything I owned in storage and I lived out of my, I lived out of one suitcase for a full year to make catching fates. So, and I'd do it all again tomorrow if I had to. (laughs) So
1: So, why no film? Oh, go ahead.
2: No, 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 no. Why no film festivals?
1: Yeah. Why no film festivals?
2: So we had sent out our first movie, Home Sweet Home, which is a thriller. Before I found a sales agent, I sent that out to every film festival. And I got rejected by everything except for like the Albuquerque Film Festival. <laughs> and then I was able to get introduced to the sales agent. And, he, and they were like, you know what? Those movies don't really sell at market, uh, sell at film festivals as much, at least around this time of 2010. And they were like, get a sales agent. That'll sell at the market. You need to get a good poster and have a sales agent so then i went on a hunt for a sales agent found him we sold it and then as we started making movies we didn't need to go to film festivals because we would go to market and just sell direct to the to the distribution company and we cut film festivals out which can be very expensive for the filmmaker like we started recouping our money and not doing the circuit because we didn't need to do the circuit because we were getting major distribution companies does that make sense
0: it does. I also want to know, I mean, I'm fascinated by the faith-based distribution and production world. And so I'm. you may have to cut me off and reroute me because it's literally all I want to talk about. Okay, great. But was, the, was Home Sweet Home Thriller, was it a faith-based, thril- faith-based thriller or was it just a, a straight thriller? And then why did you start going into faith-based content is what I'd love to hear.
2: Awesome question. So yes, no. Home sweet home is a straight up home invasion thriller. And then we sold that and I wrote another horror movie called the night shift about a girl who works overnight shifts in a haunted nursing home. And I sat down with my sales agent to sort of see if we could do a package deal with home sweet home and that and how, what can we do next? And he said, you know what? Don't do another thriller next year at the market. It'll be even more oversaturated. If you made the quality of home sweet home in the faith based arena. You'd knock the competition out of the water. And I do come from that because my dad's a minister. So I did grow up in that world. And he goes, if you will make a football faith-based movie, I'll get all the money if you make the movie. And I was like, "Ah, uh, sold. <laughs> I will do that. But I wanted to make it about a woman. And that at the time, there was like no, at this time, there was like no faith-based film starring women. So this was like a huge sort of, we had to prove that there was an audience. And, and and so, but that's how I got my first step into Faith-Based and it was awesome. And we did Catching Faith went on to be the top five consistent selling movie for RLJ
0: releasing. And we were like, oh, we're to something. And then I haven't stopped since. That's awesome. Did that answer the question? It did. I was like about to ask another and I was like, I tend to be selfish. And so I was letting Ulrich talk.
1: Well, I'm going to go back to the question I was asking before, because I've heard from other producers and other sales agents this thing about like, well, you know, yeah, it's great to have a sales agent and have that connection. But if you have a festival, a movie that does well at festivals, it'll help them sell it. So have you ever heard that kind of push push pushback from any of your your people that you've worked with? Or has it always just been like, no, as long as this poster is good, as long as you have a great movie, that's all that matters.
2: So I do think it depends what your film is and who your audience is. I mean, faith-based, there aren't a lot of film festivals for faith-based films. So it's not like we have a Sundance to go to, and our movies would never get into those kind of film festivals. So I just don't think that that would be for us. Now, for other people, for sure, if you're having a Nomadland drama, you're going to go to a film festival. But We just go directly to market with it because it is such a specific genre that doesn't. But yes, of course, I've heard that. But I also think it's a lot of work and a lot of grassroots work that can cost a lot of money. And unless you get into the top tier or the big film festivals, are there really a ton of... How much publicity are you going to get at a smaller film festival that would really move the needle in the sales? Because even movies that get to Sundance don't always go on to see distribution because Distribution is about making money. And sometimes those movies aren't huge money makers. They're art house movies, you know? So our movies are more commercial. So they're going right to market to sell. Does that yeah. make sense?
0: So okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna set up what my perspective is and see if it's true. I'm hearing this story of like you make this switch and then your career takes off to like a phenomenal a speed and, and access and and heights. And that is very exciting. And I think the perspective outside of faith based is like, Oh yeah, faith based always makes money. But like, A is, is that true? B, what do you think is the reason? Is it, is it the, is it the audience is just hungry for really good stories? Is, is it the distribution splits are better? Like, have you been able to figure out what the, like, the reason for the financial success is?
2: Yeah, I think faith-based is like horror. It has a tapped in audience, just, and you don't always need a star name. You, it's a, it's just like horror movies, thrillers. They sell when no one's in it because people are desperate to watch them. And the same with faith-based. I don't think all faith-based make a ton of money. I think that good movies. And I think our sales agent was right. Uh, The quality of the movies we could make, we were able to speed up our career because we went, put ourselves into a market that wasn't as competitive. Like if I had tried to compete with Blumhouse and the thriller horror, well, good luck to me because that... You know what I mean? So... I think also the fact that we were doing something different in the female driven I mean I think the reason Catching Faith did so well is because we were speaking to women and that is the number one audience who buys this this genre but yet they weren't being spoken to and women talk and women share and for us our films have done really well I think because we've tapped into the the massive audience it's like oh my gosh it's the moms who are buying these movies you know like my brother-in-law is a pastor and he's like I've never bought a faith based movie in my life yet all of but we're starry men. So I think we kind of cracked on something being like, we're going to go after the women. We don't care if the guys fall asleep in the room. That's not for them, you know? So I think that's why. But I, I think that I don't think there's just this, this like, oh, automatically you make a faith-based film and you're going to make a ton of money. I don't, that's a, that's not true for anything. If you don't make a good movie, it's not going to make any money.
0: <laughs> Wait, is Pure Flix a part of that though? Is that like the kernel of is, having a, your own platform for faith-based content? Or is it, or is it theatrical is it the churches coming in and encouraging ticket sales sorry i'm mm, like just p- poking at so now it's so true those are, and it's changed
2: over the past 10 years cuz it used to be churches but i think that model got burnt out a little bit oh. and for us you know we sold the rlj releasing for catching faith that's not a faith based company we actually were on netflix we're at, on amazon prime we're on hulu right now so actually getting rlj was awesome cuz they had access to much bigger platforms than just it going to pure Flix. and then we also had dvd releases and so for us dvds are still like the it's the last of the audience buying dvds you guys would not believe how many dvds we've sold of catching faith i mean like and he was right faith in football sells and yeah so we ended up selling our christmas movie to pure Flix. And we did build a relationship with Pure Flix and I'm very grateful. I've worked with Pure Flix a lot. They have, they were our exclusive streaming, just streaming for Switch. We still work with Vertical Entertainment. We were on the shelves of Walmart. We were on all of the, you know, Amazon, iTunes, Voodoo, anywhere you could buy or rent a movie. So you still want to be able to have a distribution company that can still push you out into bigger markets or bigger places, you know. But DVDs are dying. Oh, no. Oh no, I get nervous every time like Greatest Inheritance didn't get a DVD release because it's dwindling. Mm. That's too bad.
1: So since Catching Faith, have all your movies sort of been the same where like, you know, a distributor or somebody will put up the money before you make the movie? Or have you been going back to private equity investors for some of these?
2: Yeah, I have sadly never gotten the distribution upfront deal. I wish, praying every day. All of our films have been raised private investment. The only movie we had a contract for was rlj requested a sequel to catching faith one but we still had to raise the money make the movie and then they would buy the film from us and we were like oh my gosh won't you guys just give us the money so we had to still go out and raise private investment but we had a contract with the distribution company that they would buy it so at least all the investors knew that their money would come back and we made the film for exactly what rlj was going to pay for and so everyone was recouped 100% on the sale of the movie, which I wish I could do that on every movie. But that was the only deal we had because it was a sequel and a company that asked for it. But every other movie we've done, we've raised private investment and then we take the movie out to market to sell.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the experience? I mean, you said you were a minister's daughter. Your 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 brother was is a pastor. Am I getting that right? Well, my brother-in-law, my sister, who's
2: my partner, he's a pastor. (laughs) Amazing.
0: Well, are you, can you talk a little bit about like the emotional experience of working in faith-based and potentially also being a woman of faith? Like, is there something aligned there? Or am I being presumptuous about your own personal beliefs? Like, is there an extra rewarding quality to working on these films?
2: Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Like people always ask me, are you going to make a thriller or a horror? And I'm like, once you do a film that people tell you their life has been changed, I'm like, I'm like, no, I just want to make meaningful work forever. And one of the big reasons we went into doing Disney for Christian girls kind of movies was because I grew up as a minister's kid where I couldn't watch anything and I wanted to watch Dirty Dancing and... I couldn't see that. And then I was like, wait a minute, we should be making these movies for these girls who like love fashion and they love it. Why didn't we, I used to watch some boring stuff as a kid because my parents were so strict. And I was like, why, why don't we create something that this audience is would love to have a mean girls meet freaky Friday for them. So that is so rewarding to me that I know that I'm giving the next generation something that they, I did not have.
1: So since you're doing the equity investment for all the movies, so are you going back to the same investors every time or how does that work when you're raising money? Is it like a different set every time? Do you get introduced to people like through different channels that you come across, like through releasing your films? Like how, how has that been working?
2: Yeah. So, well, funnily enough, my sales agent raised all the money for Catching Faith once. And then uh, right off of the sale. So we sold that movie for, I can tell you now, it was made for $75,000 and we sold it for $250,000. That's a huge return on investment on a sale. Yeah. So we, my sales agent was wicked smart and he jumped on that opportunity and we got a hedge fund company out of Boston that was like Under movie. And so we got funding through that for Wish for Christmas. And then after Wish for Christmas, my sales agent was like, I'm really busy with my sales company. I don't think I can go out and get the the investment for you anymore, but I will be your rep. I will still rep you if you make them, but I can't do it. And I was like, oh my gosh, now I have to figure out how do you raise money and make a movie and write a movie and produce a movie and sell a movie. So I just started, well, AI's tried to get meetings, of course, with studios, but I just started talking to anyone I could talk to. And of course, being in the faith world or having people in our life that are believers, it makes it a little easier to be like, do you believe in this story? Cause we need to we need to speak to young girls. Like when I took switched out and I was like, This we need we need these movies in the marketplace. And so that is a lot of it is I just kind of I'm a hustler and I talk to everybody and, and you have to be fearless and you can't, you can't unoffendable heart if somebody just says no thank you or says anything you just have to let it go and go okay on to the next i asked you know because it can be nerve-wracking to ask people for money right
1: (laughs) yes indeed
2: (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah so i always say having you know unoffendable heart you know they're not for you that's okay and you never know people might come back later and be like oh you know what i've had that happen people be like i didn't get in on that movie but now i want to get on on the next one you know the more you do you just keep hustling it. So I was able to raise the private investment for Switch. and But first that, so those investors invested in Catching Faith 2, which was already bought by the Distribution Company. So they gave us a little bit of money and they obviously were watching us. We came in under budget. We did everything we said we'd do. And then they came back and said, okay, now that we've trusted you with a little, we're gonna give you a little bit more and we're gonna work with you on Switch. So that rolled us into Switch. And then the greatest inheritance, I went to Columbus, Georgia with my uh, producing partner, Meredith Riley Stewart. And we flew to Georgia a couple times and took meetings with people that she would just call people up. I mean, talk about someone who's fearless. She is fearless. She just call people and be like, do you want to invest in this movie? It's so good. And we were able to raise $700,000 by calling people and asking them. And obviously, going after people with a heart for faith-based films. You know, I, I think if I was in the horror world, I think it'd be a little harder to raise this kind of money because I didn't really have anyone in my life who was passionate about telling those stories. If that makes sense.
0: Well, speaking of that, like I interview filmmakers on a daily basis, and as we we all know, finding money is very difficult. Recouping is nearly impossible. Profiting out of the question for a lot of us. Right? There are obviously mm-hmm. exceptions, but then here you are telling this this like. Uh, amazing trajectory. And I'm wondering why everyone's not just like clamoring, chomping at the bit to come into the world. So, is there kind of a closed circle? Like, are people like, I'm an agnostic Jew. Like, would I be welcome in this community or, or, and, and it's okay if I'm not, I won't take it personally. But, like,
2: or, all is, is it, welcome <laughs> if you ask me. But, all is welcome.
0: Well, but in terms of like, in encouraging, like, finding directors, finding other producers sourcing content are you finding it from is it the secular am i getting right terms right the non-religious crowd are you sourcing content outside of of um, the circle as well
2: Well, we've only written our own movies, to be honest. I've never gotten outside because if I'm going to go out and raise all the money, I you know really have to believe in it. And I've had people approach me with things and I'm just like, I know how much work this is. And I just like, I think I'm going to keep on the things that I create. But when it comes to crewing and casting, all are welcome at our table. All are welcome. And so we do not have any sort of, you have to be a believer to be on our set. I mean, obviously, our film sell to a lot of people who are not believers. I mean, RLJ releasing laughs all the time because they were like, listen, we bought this little faith based film, threw it out in the world, didn't even know what to do with it, and it came back with this huge return. So they even admitted, we, they were like, we didn't even know how to market a faith based film, but it found its audience on its own, very word of mouth, very organic. And that's just such a blessing. I mean, I, I couldn't have planned that. I mean, honestly, when Catching Faith came out, it was dismal numbers. In fact, our, our our sales agent was like, let's not tell anybody about this movie and let's just move on with the sale. And then a little bit of time goes by and it starts picking up traction and numbers start clicking. And we're like, whoa, you know? So that's always encouraging to know that you might come out and it might be like crickets and then you still have a chance. So, but we, everyone is welcome. And I, I've never gone into a meeting where someone's like, you have to be a believer to be here. I, I don't think so, so... Not not that I've experienced, you know, I think our films do well because my sister and I are an authentic voice in that space. We grew up as minister kids. We are women. And we do know how to talk to that audience in a way that, that sometimes I've had some friends who aren't believers be like, Oh, I'm just going to make a a faith-based film. And I'm like, but are you authentically just like, Anything. If you hate a horror movie, you might not write a great horror movie. Not that you hate it, but you know what I mean. Yeah. But I think right. all are welcome. I have never had any pushback. I'm I i do not know. So but yeah, I think you're welcome We're to go make a face-based movie. I mean catchy face deals with the Elijah project we owe oh, one of our investors is Jewish for two of our movies and he <laughs> loves what we're doing. So yeah, I forgot our our investor. And I just had a meeting with a uh, guy who used to be over at Pure Flix and he's Jewish. He's not even a Christian, but he loved working at the company. So you I love know what people...
0: I love a good Christmas movie. A lot of Jews love a good Christmas movie. Let me tell you. Heck
2: yeah. <laughs> I loved making a Christmas movie. There's nothing more fun.
1: <laughs> so, um, since Home Sweet Home has filmmaking and doing the producing and the writing and acting in these movies, has that been your full time job, or have you had to do other things to pay the bills whilst doing all this hard work making your movies?
2: Oh, I've had many a side hustles, you guys. So many. <laughs> I I mean, thank goodness things are going well now at 42 because I started making my own movies at 30 and I had a lot more energy. And I, when we were, I worked at, I worked at Perch. I worked at like three different restaurants. I'd stand in, I was Agent Carter's stand in on Agent Carter for two seasons. And I actually left one of the seasons because we got Greenlit to Make Wish for Christmas. And they were like, good luck with your movie. and. I was always working jobs in between everything, and then it just recently I haven't had to do that. But it took eight features, and but I, I had <laughs> side hustles probably all the way up until switched and in inheritance. I was still, and I still am looking for wow. side hustles. You guys, the hustle never ends. <laughs> the hustle is real. Like, as you guys know, as independent filmmakers, it is very hard for you guys, to, for us to see the money. I think the distribution companies do great. <laughs> and sometimes we're even more concerned, we just want them to recoup the money for the investors more than us, because that's our ticket to the next movie. Mm-hmm. So sometimes they just let that go and go, well, as long as our investors get the money back, that's all that matters, because that's how I'll get to make the next film. Because I, I, people always say, if I had money, I'd make a movie. I'm like, yeah, but the first thing you do, you make a movie. Everyone wants to know how much money it made. So it, 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 <laughs> you don't want the bad numbers that could, you know, <laughs> stop you in your tracks. Yeah. But we started really low. I mean, 75, we made Home Sweet Home for 10000 We made Catching Faith for 75000 Then we made uh, Wish for Christmas for 340000 So we've been very small increments getting bigger and bigger.
0: Well then what is the ideal or what is the we ask later, you know, what what do you have in terms of goals as being a filmmaker, but is there an ideal budget level? Is it an ideal project that you're climbing towards or is it ideal at every step of the way for you?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, every movie I make is my favorite movie. <laughs> like we just did identity price. I'm like, no, this one's my favorite, but we did switch. So I'm really passionate about what we do. So I think the ideal though would be for me, my dream would be a three picture deal with the studio because the one-offs can be exhausting. And, you know, we just wrapped identity crisis. Like, Oh my gosh, right back to the drawing board of writing and, and raising money. So we did just partner with third coast content and that for us is going to be so awesome to hopefully open up other doors. And I, you know, I think you, as you guys know, nothing is overnight. It takes so long to build your name. And it has taken me a long time to really bring. I mean, the faith space is very small there. It is kind of like a little boys club and it is hard to get in there for a long time. I felt like I was on the other side of a playground going, can I come play with you guys? We're making movies over here. And I didn't think anyone knew what we were doing because we were kind of small. And then all of a sudden they started getting phone calls from people who were like, oh, no, we've been watching you. We now want to meet with you. But it just took six movies for them to say that. You know what I mean?
1: Now that you've been doing it for a while, are there other women besides you and your sister in the faith-based space? Are you guys still the only two really out there making movies and telling these kinds of stories?
2: Well, I think what's exciting is there's a lot of women who want to be, and we're really helping to pave the way for them. Like when Switch came out, I had a lot of women call me and say, I've had similar ideas, that I couldn't get greenlit. So thank you for making Switch because this is going to open up doors. So I think there are a lot of... Not a lot, but I mean, there are women out there. I think it's just a really, sorry, it is kind of the boys club and I've been fighting it for a while and, and we've been making them ourselves because we couldn't get the studios behind us. Once they can't say no, you want to get to a position where they're like, I can't keep turning down her films because they're making money and doing well. But I I do think there's some other women. I mean, we had a woman director, Sherry Rigby, who's actually a big actress in the face space. And then she directed our movie Identity Crisis. And Andrea and I are always going to bat for women, not only in front of the camera, but behind the camera. We crew up women. We try to get women into positions that they normally wouldn't get in. So... I think there are a lot of women. I think it's just been, I mean, I know I've been at it for 10 years, so I don't know who's been at it that long. I mean, there's Cindy Bond's a big name in that space, but she's already very established. Like she did Redeeming Love and Roma Downey. Of course, she's a big name, you know?
0: I want to know why 18 days is the magic number. (laughs) I think it's just kind of what we started with. And then
2: we got in that groove of 18 days. Like we can do it at low budget for 18 days. I think the next one, we would like a little bit more, a little bit more days, but it was just seemed to be the sweet spot to make the budget fit into the movie
0: was 18 days. Is that six on six on one off? Or is it?
2: Well, some movies we did do six day weeks, which is grueling, like Catching Faith was six day weeks, I believe Wish for Christmas was and I think Catching Faith two was and then our crew was like, please, please stop doing six day weeks. We're going to have a heart attack. So Switched, I think, was our first film where we got to move to five. We had a bigger budget. So we were like, we're moving to five-day weeks so we don't crush our crew. Although sometimes it's nice to just get in and get out, you know, especially now with COVID. like The less days you have, the less <laughs> days you have a chance of being shut down. <laughs> so I don't know, 18 days is kind of what we all came up with and we've been doing it that way ever since. <laughs> we, we made it. We make a lot of things up, Liz. You guys, we make it all up as
0: we go. <laughs> well, it's working. So I think it's you doing Okay. <laughs>
1: What about directors? So I saw that you worked with uh, a lot of the same or the same director on a lot of your movies. Like talk about that relationship and then like how you like to work with directors.
2: Yeah. So John Graham and I actually started together the company and we made Home Sweet Home together with Rick Galley, our cinematographer. And the three of us, you know, we made all of our movies together and we I'm a big believer in if somebody helps you when you had a little and you get a little bit more, you bring them back because you want to repay them. I like to bring back crew that are really good and say, like our, sa- our our composer was with us on every movie and every movie, I was like, now I can give you a little bit more. Thank you for sticking with us when we've been small. I really do. I like to be good to people, and 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 I think a lot of times in our business, people just use people, and then they never call them again. And I I hate that. I feel like if somebody h- helped me when I didn't have anything, I need to bring them back when I have something. So we do try to bring back the same crew, especially if you start getting a shorthand, like you said, Liz. Eighteen days. A lot of our crew. It's a shorthand. We've been working together for so many years that we can just talk. Once we get the money in the bank, we kind of had a little well-oiled machine going, and it worked great. And then. So John recently decided he wanted to kind of go off and do sci-fi and horror and something different. So Andrea and I, my sister and I kind of took over the company and was like, that's totally cool. You should go do horror. We believe in the teen girl space. We're going to run after this. It's very hard to build a brand. So once you've built a brand, I'm like, I'm sticking with it. And then we, were, we went and got... And I love John. He was such a wonderful director. We worked really well together and we missed him a lot on our last film. But we brought in a woman director, which I've been pr- wanting to do for a really long time. So when John actually decided to remove himself, to me, I was like, oh, this is the opportunity to give one, a woman a chance as a director. So I'd like to keep I actually think my sister and I are going to direct the next movie. Good. Ah,
1: oh, yes. Exciting. Yes. I've it written- took what, eight, eight movies?
2: <laughs> i know well, i i know and our and our our partner wanted me to direct identity crisis and i i talked myself out of it because i had a little imposter syndrome issues going on and then being on that set of that movie i was like i should have just done it and uh, you know i can figure it out but i think it was good to 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 have one movie with a different director after working with john for so long it helped me learn because i relied on john so much as a director and rick our cinematographer for i mean the all of us have made like seven movies together because we did two horrors too, or two thrillers. I think working with a new director helped me learn like, oh, pay attention to things I didn't pay attention to that I was like, maybe I could do this. So plus I've been writing, producing for 10 years. You got to find a new challenge. I a new challenge.
0: <laughs> I'm thinking about tropes, like tropes of horror films. It's like there's gore, there's the jump scare, there's the stinger. I'm thinking of tropes of rom-coms, the spring, the meet cute. Are there tropes of faith-based films that you you always want to integrate or encourage to integrate or do you defy that what what are the tropes?
2: Well, I do go by Save the Cat book. Do you guys know Save the Cat? Huge fan. I believe in that book so much because if you hit all those beats, you'll you won't go wrong. And the tropes though, I mean, might be a little different. I don't I think we do teen girl. So we have a lot of montages. We have the tropes <laughs> of they always have to have a makeover. (laughs) And there's always a makeover scene in every movie. There's always kind of the three girls who are, you know, the, you know, we kind of definitely pull from everything that works in the teen girl space. And we're just, we're just re we're, we're recoloring the wheel that's already been around for a long time. So we always, and it was really funny because we had done the makeover scene in this script of identity crisis. We got the set, the twins came up to us. They were like, we've been waiting the whole show to do this scene. Because people love it and they're coming for it. They want the the teen girl makeover scene. Every movie has it. So that's our trope. Always having a makeover scene, or you know, always want to be with a group that maybe you can't get into because we all want to be in the popular group.
1: <laughs> so I noticed on the the credits for Identity Crisis that you had one of the the teen uh, the the twins were playing the clone and one was playing the other. Like, how did you guys decide like which twin would play which character? and did you stick to that i mean what do they just that was their characters or did you have to move them around for different reasons or how did that all work
2: so a couple years ago i got so blessed and through women in film or i met lisa london and katherine stroud who are casting directors best thing that ever happened to me ever was meeting lisa london she casted switched and it made all the difference because lisa and katherine used to be at disney and so having their expertise, so they actually did a nationwide search for the twins for our movie, and they got thousands of submissions they went through. And then they narrowed it down to a few girls. And I, she, uh, Lisa actually worked with all the girls. So Lisa decided who she thought would be the good Madison and who would be the good clone. So when they came to us to audition, she had already Picked the Madison and the clone character. And the girls who did it, they were perfect. Like it, when I saw their taped auditions, those, the girls we casted were my favorites just as a writer. I was like, oh, that's when, that's exactly what Madison looks like. Yes, yes. And then I was just praying that everybody else on the team would agree and that at the callbacks, they would bring it like they did. And they were really good. And they actually said that it, it did fit their personalities better. So we never. There's only one time due to losing time on set that we had to use one of the girls and double her for the other girl. We really didn't want to do that because you can kind of, although people are watching the test screening going, I can't tell them apart. So, (laughs) but there was only one time, but we kind of do it just from the side because we didn't want the audience to know that it's the other girl. But otherwise they stayed exactly in their positions as the actors the whole movie.
1: Wow. Amazing.
2: Yeah, it was so fun. I just showed somebody the scene where the clone comes out of the machine and he said to me, Oh my gosh, that split screen is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it's not a split screen. <laughs> well,
1: I, I just made a doppelganger movie as my first feature and having gone through, gone through the experience and happy to do split screens. I'm like, ah, next time just get fucking twins. That's such a great <laughs> idea. Just do that. That's going to save so much headache, you
2: know? So much. I mean, that was everyone's first question is how are you going to afford the special effects? And it really is a happy accident that we had these twins. They didn't work out for the movie, but they really helped stem this idea. And we love science and we love messing science and faith. And it's all about science. We love sci-fi. We don't see any sci-fi and faith based. So it's like fun to do new stuff for
0: the audience. I'm ready to jump to final six. What about you, Ulrich? Do you have a final question? No,
1: I think we uh, I think we nailed it all. Yeah, it's really fun. It.
0: Well, I can't wait to see your film.
2: Congratulations. I love doppelganger oh, stuff. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> well, you're not free yet to watch it because, Alexandra, you're stuck answering these questions. <laughs> What's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now?
2: The first film I made or I acted in. Oh, either one. Either one. So my first film as an actor was a horror movie called Drainiac. By And it's like a huge cult following movie. It's kind of crazy. And it's old school puppets. Like, I mean, this was back in like, yeah, 1997 when I was like 17. My parents let me get, get out of high school to go and be in this movie in upstate New Hampshire. And we were acting with like real puppets that were like the horror puppets. And I look back thinking what a fun experience that I don't think they make things like that anymore. And I'm glad I got to be a part of it. And it was learning literally, it was just like one guy in a boom. So that was my very first thing. And Drainiac it's got, it, I think it got like a 10 year special DVD edition where they did a commentary. So it's kind of fun to be in. I mean, it's so bad. It's good. That's the thing. It's so bad. <laughs> it's so bad. It's good. So that was fun.
1: What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received?
2: Oh, gosh, I I received so much. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Best filmmaking that I've gotten. Probably the best filmmaking advice I ever got was from Bridget Jurgens and Jen Sparks, who run Dog and Pony Creative. They said to me, your poster is the most important part of your entire film. And what is the point of making a film if you're not going to put money into your poster? And that advice literally is what changed my career because our movie Home Sweet Home sold off of the poster. And if I hadn't met those girls and they hadn't instilled that advice on me, I don't think we ever would have sold Home Sweet Home. But it's because they built that poster that caught the distribution company's eye. And they've done all of our posters since. And actually Catching Faith sold off the poster too. Best advice
0: I ever got. Key art. Key art is the most important thing. What is the worst advice you've ever received?
2: Oh gosh, what's the worst advice I've ever received? Oh, oh, that you can't... You can't go from horror to faith-based. You can't do that. Anytime someone tells someone that they can't do it, just tell them to go go away from you because there are no rules. It's like what you said about the film festival. You said it. I don't know. I mean, film festivals were right for somebody else. It just didn't work for me. I would never say, oh, don't take your movie to a film festival. It's just finding what works for you. And people actually said to us after we did the, here's a funny thing. After we did Home Sweet Home, we ran off and made a faith base. People in our the business were like, you'll never sell a faith base after you've made a horror movie. Guess what? We sold Catching Faith to the same company that bought Home Sweet Home. So don't listen to people. Naysayers just want to bring you down. You just, If you believe in something, you just keep going at it.
1: I love it. <laughs> Do you have a goal as a filmmaker?
2: Yes. My goal is to get a three-picture deal with the studio or a television series would be amazing. And my goal is that I want to be making so many of these teen girl movies a year that, I mean, we have so many we need to make, make to compete with how much other stuff that I do think there's a lot of negative content going out for young girls that really bothers me that I'm like, it's fine to have it. I just think we need an alternative version for girls to have something to watch that does empower them, inspires them, talks about their confidence. So I want to make so many of these movies. I mean, that's my dream is that we have so many that girls have a plethora of things to watch and share at slumber parties and they're not running out of content too. So, and yeah, three-picture deal with a studio.
0: So I'm not doing one-offs anymore. If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you'd give yourself?
2: Oh my gosh, start when I was 19. When I moved to LA at 19, I would have told her, don't put all your tools in a, under the bed and just pursue acting. I would have said, right? figure out how to get a camera, start making stuff, start meeting other people that want to do different things than you. I wish I could go back and tell my little 19-year-old that because I'd be so much further along now if it hadn't taken me 10 years to figure that out. And I had a lot of friends out here, Evan Gaudel, who made a movie called Bellflower. I don't know if you guys know Bellflower. He's a yes. good friend. I used to hang out with him in our early 20s. And we'd be making stuff and I'd be watching him do it. And I wish that now, if I could go back, I would have been like, okay, Evan, teach me. How can I make a short? We'll make your short, then my short. Because, you know, Evan's a mad genius. And I was with him back in the early when we were both like 21 years old, running around with his camera. So if I could go back, that's what I'd tell myself. Start making movies at 19 years old. Don't wait. Don't just pursue acting. Because... That was, And I think it was different back then because we didn't have this multi-hyphenate ability that we have now. It's almost like you're an actor. You have to be an actor. But I wish I didn't listen to those rules. And I wish acting was part of my life. But nobody wants to hire a desperate actor. So I was pretty desperate. They were like, yeah, I can tell you're... And now I I book Maisel and the girl from Plainville. And it's all because my life is so full. I probably go in and I'm like, well, throw it away. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But then it would Last be like everything. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: I need to give an extra beat to have you say your final little. Oh, no. No, no, no. go, go, go! <laughs> is making movies hard?
2: My gosh, it is so hard. You are running. A, if you get to the opportunity to make the movie, you're running an entire village as a producer. You're dealing with so many different personalities, and. Making movies—I mean, think about the process. You first come up with this idea, and then you got to write it. And then, when you're done with writing it, you got to send it out to notes. And then you've got to either find someone who believes in it, or you got to—I mean, the amount that goes into making a feature film is so hard, and you have to be somebody who does not give up. Who I mean, Home Sweet Home—we could have given up a million times. We had no deal for it, even after all the film festivals rejected us. We could have easily just been like, "Well, that didn't work out," but we kept hustling. It is so hard, and it's also really hard. It gets harder too, as you have my acting coach used to say. It doesn't get easier; everything just gets bigger. And I think that's really good advice for if you're starting to work with more partners. This is a new process. We have new producing partners. I'm used to kind of having fun. and so that's a new thing. There's always something new in this business. It doesn't mean things are getting better. It actually just means they're getting bigger. And so you have to mold and conform to a new way of making a film, and you have to let go of your ego. That would be my big advice too for people is. Take your ego off. It's not about your ego. It's about making the best project and working with people in a good, kind way that people want to keep working with you again. Beautiful.
0: All right. What, what's the timing? What's the schedule for this? What's going on?
1: Oh, first, wh- where, where oh, can people yeah. find uh, your work, Alexander, like, Do you have a website? Is there a certain place where they can go to support you, Twitter, all that stuff?
2: Yes. So our website is com. That's where all my faith films are my thriller at your own risk with helena santos just came onto to freebie on amazon and it's about to be on tubi that's an awesome female driven thriller follow me on instagram alexandra boylan i'm very active and i answer everybody and i'm so question for me reach out i always answer and i like to i like to help other people i feel like as much as you ask you must give back so i love to give back if so
0: i can always help someone Ulrich, what do you remember about our talk with Alexandra? I
1: remember that she had this amazing energy, and she was so positive. She was so encouraging, and her journey as a filmmaker was so interesting because she she started off like doing genre filmmaking. And then went from there into like directly into faith-based and like sort of based off a conversation she had with like one of her sales reps or something like that. And it was really interesting to like (laughs) see like her journey towards it because she is like comes from a religious background. She does have a a father who is a a preacher or a pastor Pastor. or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, the the connection was there, but it was just like when she realized that there was a need and like an opportunity, she was like, oh, this is what I should be doing. And then it was like totally her calling. It's like what she loves to do is to make these faith-based movies, and, like, especially featuring women, because, like that's really surprising to me that there's not a, a lot of female-focused, faith-based movies because, like she was saying in the show, that that is the audience. Like, you'd figure there'd be a ton, but like, oh, it's that's not, because I guess it is also a patriarch patriarch sort of thing with, with, with the church and religion and stuff, so I guess that sort of makes sense, but I, I don't know. I'm, it's just really cool to hear that she's out there, you know, making those movies and like, that she found her path that has been like a very, very successful one and was very jealous of her pool that she had behind her. <laughs>
0: Oh man, I didn't even notice the pool. I I should go into faith
1: based work. Ah.
0: (laughs) I agree that she has an amazing attitude. She was so fun to talk to. And I admit that I've always had a bias against faith based content. You know, I'm an agnostic Jew, I'm very cynical. I, you know, I've, we could go into my worldview. (laughs) But when I was a film critic, they would always send me, the token woman, to the faith based content. And I had to watch, you know, a smattering of, Films that I thought were just really not good. And it wasn't until she said that she really wanted to make empowering content for women that it started to click into gear because she said that coming, growing up religious, she wasn't allowed to watch a lot of content. And I didn't even think about that play. You think about all those young women who are like barred from watching mainstream Hollywood content. And then you think about, well, wouldn't it be nice if they had something really of substance? something empowering to watch. And then I, st- I started to get the the whole lay of the land from Alexandra and why she was doing what she was doing. And it made me open up my mind quite a lot. This felt like, like I, I hope this is one of those conversations for the books, but at least being a part of it, it felt like one of those conversations where I was just like, oh, I just genuinely want to know answers from you, Alexandra, and I want to like unlock why you do what you do. She was really cool.
1: Yeah, no, it was, it was awesome. And I mean, it's funny because like you, you always hear that, like or I've heard it before, like faith-based is like a market that's like, like you know, always sells well, always does well, you know? And, like, I've always kind of not been interested, because that's just not the movies that I like to watch personally. But, you know, it was fun to hear the journey of someone who who was, like, heard that and thought the exact opposite of me and was like, okay, yeah, let's do it. Let's go make it happen. The other thing that we want to talk about today, which is uh, a news segment from IndieWire, but it was an article from Christian Zelko about the Yellow Jacks creator's stars uh, having this brunch uh, that they do uh, over at indiewire and they just dis- basically discussing yellow jackets and going into the making of the show and how it came up came together and then they they pretty much are coming onto this this topic of like how it's still considered brave to show flawed female characters in in media and like television, or films, you know, and they had kind of go into like the background of where it came from. Like they were writers on narcos and that they were like, you know, feeling, Oh, well, you know, there's all these, these bad, you know, male characters, but like, let's, let's do something with females. So like that was sort of, you know, the, the, the little beginning of the show, which I thought was interesting. You watched the whole brunch. I didn't watch the video. Do you have any more insight, Liz, about this that I I left out?
0: No, I mean, like, it was your regular run-of-the-mill Q&A where they, you know, talked. They're very supportive of the show and the way it was created and how they put it together. And I wouldn't say it was edifying, so to speak. I just was making lunch, so I kept it on. But what's interesting is the use of the word brave. Like, it's so funny the way when they talk about content or art that has women in it, they always seem to use the word brave. Like, I remember Mindy Kaling made this comment where she's like, everyone calls me brave because they they would call Mindy Kaling brave because she wasn't a size zero. And she thought it was so funny because she's like, this is just my size. Like, I'm not brave. That's really condescending to call me brave. Like, I'm just like living my life. And then it's like, oh, yeah, like, complex female characters how brave like it's 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 a charged comment no matter who says it but I think with yellow jackets you have they're still likable characters like even if they're really complex and even if they're really dark and do horrible things there's still a lot of levity to the show and I think they're still likable so I wouldn't say that there's bravery in terms of pushing the content to unlikable. Characters, they're still charming and have charisma and are familiar to us. And I guess my comment is that is it, is it brave? (laughs) Is it like, it's like they're just really interesting characters and it's silly to talk about it in this way. Yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, like, I don't know who's who's saying this. Like, who said it's brave? I I was trying to find like the quote or the review or the thing where like someone was like, it's so brave to. To well, what they did with Yellow Jacks was great. Like I didn't see that anywhere, so I was wondering, like, was that just like an internal thing that they like have been feeling themselves, right. you know, over their careers, or is like, is this like where where is this coming from?
0: <laughs> like and I, I think there are a million reasons why people love Yellow Jackets, which is, by the way, one of the best shows. Ever. Yellow Jackets is so amazing. I am a massive fan, but I think part of it is it taps into nostalgia, it taps into mystery, it taps into you know, alternative culture that isn't really on TV a lot, especially, you know, I will admit for women, this kind of like 90s alternative scene that I don't get to see a lot, you know, but, but Brave is silly. I think when Eric, our producer, suggested this article, I was just like, yes, can we just talk about Yellow Jackets for 15 minutes? Like, let's just like, the article <laughs> could have been about anything. And I was just like, I just want to like gossip about how great this show is. It did make me think of other female characters that are complicated and interesting and dark and i think there's a bunch but it did always bring me back to vince gilligan and you know breaking bad and better call Saul, because i think the women mm. on on those shows are really well drawn as well so
1: yeah well, that was what was interesting because they, they referenced Walter White. And I was like, but Skylar White's crazy yeah. as shit, too. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and so is Kim from Better Call Saul. Like they're I love Kim. They're both very detailed, layered characters who make some very terrible choices themselves, you know, in addition to, yeah. the, to the leads of the show. But it's like, I guess they just don't get that attention. And Carmela Soprano,
0: Carmela Soprano is also incredibly complex. I mean, I think the complexity is there because if it's not in the writing, it's the performances are additive and usually bring in a lot of nuance and substance that, whether it's in the writing or not, it's just promotion and it's marketing. Like the image for Breaking Bad is always Walter White. The image for The Sopranos is always Tony Soprano. Those become the iconic images. But in terms of content, I think that, you know, we've had complex interesting compelling female characters for a long time now and they're just not getting the publicity and the light shine shown on them that they deserve so it's good that you know we have to it takes a show with you know four of them to to sell the point (laughs) to push the point forward
1: yeah yeah awesome well i have one other thing i don't know who cares no say it i guess well it's just like i i have gotten the note of the past it's like well you can't have your female lead do that. You can't have your female character do this. Like, it's too... That's too over... The audience won't accept it. And it's like, yeah, whatever. They, they don't have to be all good. <laughs> they can be bad. Like, they, yeah. they don't have to be perfect people. And I feel like th- those are just notes that are just, like, hold over from, like, old bad notes from before. Where it's like, you can't do this in writing. You can't do that. Like, oh, don't- you can't have, like, a, you know, multi... like cultural cast like oh you can't have a non-white lead like it's like this stupid fucking bullshit that like you know you you still hear today that i just think is not relevant anymore that was maybe relevant 30 years ago but it's like not and it it shouldn't have been relevant then and probably wasn't even relevant then but like people just have been saying forever and ever and it's just like no, like we don't need to follow these stupid constraints anymore. Like we can tell stories about anything or anyone, and put anybody or anyone in in the movie, and it's totally fine. So let's move on, people. Well,
0: but going going back to the full circle comment on Mindy Kaling, it's why representation is so important. Just like you're talking about, there's an episode of Shrill where she goes to i don't know if you watched all of season one i think you may have all of
1: season it. one but but not but not season two
0: so she goes to a swimming pool she goes to a party in a swimming pool in season oh one.
2: yeah and it's right. like one
0: of the best episodes of tv ever and i've never seen that many curvy bodies on screen where they're not being made fun of like ever i don't think ever anything and it's like oh how brave whatever <laughs> Making fun of the original comment, but I but I want to acknowledge that all we're talking about here is representation and shining a light on the content that is putting forth these really exciting characters and opportunities to show characters in new lights. So thinking about size, thinking about race, thinking about gender, like it's there. We just need to promote it. Man, everything come down comes down to marketing. Everything, everything we talk about comes down to marketing all the time.
1: Yeah, good point. It's true. Marketing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We have a question from our newest patron. His name is Mitch Fields. Mitch writes, Hey guys, been listening for several months, but finally got a chance to sign up here. Thank you, Mitch, by the way. I really enjoy your show and the wide variety of guests and especially personal insights into the biz. I'm one of these guys. And here he says in quotes, I spent 30 years living another professional life, but now I'm putting my creative life at the front of the bus. Mitch continues on. I just wrapped shooting on my second short film. And as we barrel ahead with post, I'm trying to find better info to help me build a festival strategy. Is it worth some of my budget to buy a few hours of consulting with someone that could guide me to festivals that are a realistic fit for my project? I'm happy to share more about my project if that will help you point me in the right direction. Thanks, and looking forward to the next podcast. All right, Arik, what do you think?
1: I was like, talk to Liz. Hire Liz. She's right there. She does this. Hire
0: Liz. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I've never done that for my movies. Like, maybe I should have. I've always just kind of gone it alone and like, you know, reached out to festival programmers directly and like just gone, you know, through that process, you know, as an indie filmmaker, just like not working with a team or with a person. But uh, having, you know, talked to Liz about this at length over the last few months and then hearing about it from other people, maybe it's a good idea. I don't know. But it's it depends if you can afford it or not, I, I guess. But Liz, what do you think?
0: Yeah, it all comes down to if you have an extra, if you have money in the budget for it. Because if, if each film is an investment into your career and expanding your network and making relationships and breaking into each tier of the festival world, I think the investment is worth it. But if it's just a sketch, if it's just an exercise, if you're if you're just the space where you're honing your craft and you have no career goals for this film, you may want to save that budget for the next film because it, it is content dependent. So I just started doing festival lobbying and I'm doing it for two features and I may be there's a few people who reached out recently and I might I might be adding them to my to my slate, but I'm always really honest with them and I say the first thing I say is one, there are very few legitimate people who do this kind of work, festival lobbying. I recommend the Film Collaborative and you could go to their website. They're amazing. The festival agency and then those are really the only True festival lobbyists that I'm aware of outside of, you know, agencies and managers using their relationships to help garner opportunities for their clients. And then there's a bunch of people who say that they do this kind of work, but I, I don't know how well vetted they are. And when I bring on new clients, I always try to manage their expectations that all I can do is use my relationships to help break through the doors with them to be someone who's not a part of their production team who could stake my reputation and my name on the content of their film, which I think is important. But in terms of like what festivals are the best fit, across the board, I give people the exact same advice. Like you just want to get into the best possible festival. It's not like there's hundreds of thousands of festivals, and you're going to find the, the soulmate festival for you. The goal is to break out, break into and level up every single time you submit to film festivals. It's about getting closer and closer to Cannes and Locarno and Venice and Sundance and TIFF. That's, that's the goal. And to not expect to break into that festival without doing the work and putting in the time. So if you hire someone, just make sure they're not making any false promises. And it may be worth it for someone just to tell you it's not going to get into Sundance if it's not going to get into Sundance. But I think you should always try, even if someone's telling you it's not going to get in.
1: Right, because that builds your your like relationship with them, right? Just submitting yeah. to some degree.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If you can afford it, yeah. I think you should always try. If if that if your goal is a career oriented goal.
1: Right. Yeah, interesting. Well, I think that's very good advice. You know, Mitch, very excited to hear what you end up doing. And if you do end up hiring Liz, uh, it'd be fun <laughs> to hear that too. But uh, no pressure. And for the rest of you out there, you can always send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at com, or be like uh, Mitch and join our Patreon and just do it through the Patreon messaging system. I, I, we had a couple messages in there. I didn't even know. So now I have to start checking that on a regular basis. Also, you can leave us a review on iTunes, which would be quite lovely. Finally, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Mickey Movies is Hard Podcast. We also make sure to check out the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA. They're an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and of course their Top Twenty Five Writers list featuring some of their best writers. So head over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks so much to Al Jandra for coming on the show. Thanks to our badass editor. Jeff Weirmut for just doing the editing and being super badass about it, and thanks to our producer Eric Tom's for just being simply awesome. And we will talk to y'all next week. You're gonna record on the old, the old. Oh, you are recording. Yes. Jeff, that's just just so you can further proof that I
2: basically don't really pay attention to anything. Um.